I'm sure that uh, all of you here are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, great series, fiction series, uh, been made into a couple of movies, I think. You know the story, four children pass through a, a portal in the back of a wardrobe and they find themselves in the land of Narnia, which is being terrorized by the White Witch. Of course, the children run into uh, talking beavers. This is my first problem with the story. But, um, you know, I, I, I defer to the genius of C.S. Lewis. They run into Mr. and Miss Beaver, and Mr. and Miss Beaver assure the children that, that the king's going to return soon and set all things right. You know the story? You guys familiar with this story? Right? The king is going to return and set all things right. Lucy asks, you remember what Lucy asked? She says, is the king a man? Mr. Beaver said, a man? Of course he's not a man. He's the great lion of the wood. He's the son of the emperor from across the sea. He's Aslan. He's Aslan the, the, the lion. Do you remember? Anybody remember her next question? No, not who's Aslan. No, that, that was not it. That's a good guess, Tyler. Very good. Um, pardon me? Yeah, she said, is he safe? Do you remember? She said, is he safe? What did Mr. Beaver say? Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. Do you remember that line? I love, I love how that, I love that line there. So, the question for you and I is, if we obey, if we believe, if we exercise faith, if we really walk with Jesus, if we really follow Him, will it be temporally safe for us or not? What do we learn from reading our Bibles? Maybe, maybe not. This is in God's sovereign hands, right? This is in God's sovereign hands. Daniel was delivered, but Stephen was stoned. This is always God's sovereign prerogative. I love what Graham Cook says about God. I've shared this with you before. You always know what God is going to be like, but you never really know exactly what God's going to do. I think that's true. If any of, us, any of you in here have walked very long with the Lord, you understand that statement. We're really never quite sure exactly what God has in store for us in a temporal sense. We're never really quite sure. But we're always sure what our call is. What is our call, Christian friend? What is our call? We're never not sure about what our call is. What did Jesus come? You know, Jesus was, was unequivocal here. What did He say? He said, follow me. Follow me. And that's really the, the challenge. That's really the, the application tonight. I want to ask you to look inside your heart. Are you following Jesus Christ? With all abandon, are you following Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, He's worthy. He's worthy. He's a worthy God to follow with abandon. Jesus never said nor even implied that following Him would be safe. Jesus never did imply that. In fact, He said explicitly that the opposite would be true. You know what He told His disciples. He said, men will hate you on my account, right? He said, men will lay hands on you and persecute you for my name's sake, right? Jesus said, uh, they will even put you to death because of your testimony. Jesus has never guaranteed the temporal safety, the, the temporal security, the temporal health, the temporal 
uh, prosperity of his people. Now, I know there's a whole false gospel out there called the prosperity gospel. Well, it's just, it's just false. That's just what it is. It's false. You just wonder if these guys that preach this stuff have ever actually read the Bible all the way through. Because Jesus, Jesus calls us to something that's a bigger challenge than simply health, wealth, and prosperity. That's what the, the prosperity preachers talk about. But Jesus calls us to temporal self-denial. He calls us to cross-bearing. He calls us to, to possible persecution. He, he calls us to even possible martyrdom. If we believe, if we really go with Christ, will it be safe? I don't know the, que- the answer to that, but I know this. It will be life. It will be the biggest life you've ever lived if you walk. If you go with Jesus, if you obey Him. You know, there's much that passes for Christianity today that is simply biblically unrecognizable. Some of you that have been around, you've been in churches. Uh, some of you have traveled quite a bit. It's simply unrecognizable. It, it, it's domesticated. It's like domesticated Christianity. It's dumbed down. It's comprised of little more than showing up for church on Sunday and giving mental assent to some historical facts about Jesus. Oh, maybe throw a euro or two into the offering plate. You know, the whole spare change mentality. Uh, Maybe serve the church in some way as long as it's not too inconvenient, right? Uh, Maybe uh, avoiding the, you know, avoiding the really, really bad sins. Uh, And maybe actually speak the name of Christ to someone out in the world as long as it doesn't make anyone too uncomfortable. Right? I mean, brothers and sisters, this is, this is biblically unrecognizable Christian behavior. When I open up the pages of the Bible, I read, I read about, I don't read about mental ascent Christianity. I read about hearts on fire. Amen? I don't read about mental ascent Christianity. Uh, I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't see obligatory church attendance. I see, I see, I can't wait to worship this awesome God. Try to stop me. And I see passionate worship. People with hearts on fire coming to worship the Lord. You don't see this spare change giving. You know, it's like, I, you can't stop me from giving a worthy offering to my worthy Savior. You can't stop me. My giving will be systematic and selfless and sacrificial. You know, you don't see this convenient service to the church. You see men and women pouring themselves out for the body of Christ. This is what we see in the New Testament. You don't see people merely trying to avoid the the really bad sins. You see people who are serious about being holy, right? That's what you read on the pages of Scripture. And you don't find people who sheepishly speak about Jesus. You find men and women who are boldly proclaiming the gospel, not only in their words, but in their deeds. Now, this is biblical Christianity. It seems to me that somewhere along the way... uh, Christianity, by and large, got hijacked by religion. It seems to me that that has happened. It seems that, for the most part, it has become domesticated. Now, you know what the word domesticate means, I trust. Let me give you a definition. It means to tame. You know, Keith used that word earlier. It means to tame, to subdue, to suppress, to make docile. Much of what is called Christianity today is subdued, and it's been made docile. But that's not, the kind of, that's not the kind of faith I read about on the pages of Scripture. We all 
use the name of Jesus Christ, but very few actually seek to live the life of Jesus Christ. Passionate, fearless, untamable, radical, extravagant obedience to the Father. Jesus says, this is my food. This is my bread to do the will of my Father. (laughs) This is supposed to be our food. This is supposed to be our bread. Not prosecuting our own agenda in the world, but prosecuting our Father's agenda in the world. And as we do that, beloved, you know you know this is true. You actually find out that is your agenda. You find out that does make your heart beat fast when you obey the Lord Jesus Christ in an extravagant way. You know, many Christians risk nothing, they sacrifice nothing, they venture nothing, and they forego nothing for the cause of Christ. Friends, this is not biblical Christianity. This is biblically unrecognizable. Biblically unrecognizable. I love uh, Philippians 1.21. I share it with you frequently, but to me, uh, I think it embodies undomesticated, authentic, genuine uh, Christianity. To live as Christ, to what? Die as gain. There it is. That's the call. To live as Christ, to die as gain. That's the Christian call right there. That's it. To live as Christ, to die as gain. I shared this with you, I think, maybe a couple weeks ago. I don't remember. Uh, The older I get, the less I remember. But I love what John Eldridge says about men and women who really get Philippians 1.21. He says they're the most dangerous people on the planet. Amen? Don't you want to be dangerous? Don't you want to turn the world upside down? That's what Christians do. They turn the world upside down, one life at a time. As As you get into a life and you share yourself with a person, you share that gospel... God turns the world upside down one life at a time. Uh, Eldridge continues, he said, Sure, you can create a nice, safe life for yourself and end end your days in a rest home babbling about some forgotten misfortune. I love this. He says, But I'd rather go down swinging. That's what Paul says too. Paul says exactly the same thing. Paul, it was just like that for Paul. You guys know that Paul wrote the book of Colossians and we're going to continue our look at that book tonight. And Paul says, hey, I'm not really into that whole domesticated, tame Christianity thing. He says, I'm not really into that. He says, I'm not going to die in a nursing home. If I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down swinging. And that's exactly what, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. So just in summary, we, we know that the, uh, the Holy Spirit has prompted Paul to write this letter to confront false teaching. So many letters in the New Testament are written for that purpose. False teachers were asserting that to be saved you needed Christ plus something else, right? You needed Christ plus something else. They were uh, trying to teach against the pure gospel of uh, being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We've talked about, I may say that every, for every sermon in Colossians. That is the Protestant Reformation. That is the cry. That is the biblical cry. We are saved by Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I've been saying this. Anytime someone adds anything to the gospel, it's false. Not only is it false, it's demonic. You know, Jesus said, you are of your your father, the devil, and he is the father of lies. Friends, anytime you encounter a lie or a half-truth, it's not from God. And there's only one other place for it to be from. So the false gospel, 
is from any false gospel will be from the adversary. It doesn't matter what you call it, Catholic, Protestant, or anything else. If you teach that, that you have to have Christ plus religion, it's false. It's not biblical. And this is Paul's point, one of his main points in the book of Colossians. He's defending the purity and simplicity of the biblical gospel. He says, Jesus Christ is all you need. That's it. You don't need anything else. You need Jesus. What he did on the cross was enough. That's it. You don't need your religion. All you need is Jesus Christ. All you need to do is place your faith in the Son of God. And he saves his people to the uttermost. He saves his people to the uttermost. And as I've shared with you as we've gone through this book, the first few verses, I can just hear Paul uh, between the lines saying, don't you dare add religion to him. Don't you dare do it. He is sufficient. Jesus and His finished work is sufficient to save His people. Look at verse 24 again. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice, Paul says, in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I, I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I, I really would plan on preaching five verses. I really planned on it. I'd done all the background reading. I was going to do it. And I just got stuck on verse 24. I, I couldn't get past it. And so here we are. Verse 24. Paul says, I'm not really into the docile kind of Christianity. I'm not really into that tame Christianity. He says, you know, the kind that's just all neat and comfortable and manageable and safe and secure. He says, I'm not really into that. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. You know, Paul knew firsthand that to really go with Christ was by no means safe. He knew it firsthand. It was anything but safe. In fact, it was quite risky. You guys know this little book we give away, which uh, we don't have one on the table right now, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper. He says, man, if you're really going to go with Jesus, there's always going to be risk involved. Does anybody know what John Piper says about that? Oh, well, play it safe. Stay at home. Don't get out of bed. What does Piper say? It's always right to take that risk. It's always right to take that risk to follow Christ. It doesn't matter what it is. It's always right to take it. It's always right to take any risk when it comes to obedience. Why is it always right to take that risk? You know, it's, it transcends. And I know many of you might say, well, we, we, we should. It's our duty. We ought to. Yes, we should. It's our duty and we ought to. That's true. But really knowing Christ, it transcends that. It's out of desire. We cannot not go with Him. It's because we love Him. It's because we're hopelessly in love with Him. And He's the most beautiful, alluring, attractive being we've ever encountered. And it's about desire because here's the deal. You know the, you know the great text. Uh, John 14 something, I forget the verse, maybe verse 21. But what's this uh, alluring promise of God? If you obey me, what? What does Jesus say? He says, if you obey my commands, what will Jesus say? What does He say He'll do? He says, I will come to you and I will disclose myself to you. Friends, that's the best promise. I it could be. It could be the greatest promise in the Bible. God says, I'm going to come to you. And I'm going to give myself to you when you obey me. I love that. Man, that, that got me fired one time. It was awesome. I'll tell you about it some other time. You know, I didn't want to... I, 
I was in a hard spot. I said, Lord, give me the courage to do the right thing in this place. And when I saw that in my Bible, you do what I say, I'm coming to you. I'm going to disclose myself to you. Friends, we obey because we get God. We get God. God comes to His people in obedience and He gives Himself to them. You know, Paul says, safe is nice, but safe is not ultimate. Jesus Christ is ultimate. Jesus Christ is ultimate. Paul says, yeah, Jesus is better than safe. He's better than secure. He's better than comfortable. Amen? Is He? Is that, is that real in your life? Is Jesus better than safe? Is Jesus better than secure? Is Jesus better than comfortable? Paul says Jesus is better than career. He's better than prestige. He's better than popularity. He's better than religion. He's better than everything. <laughs> That's what Paul says. You guys know the great text, Philippians chapter 3, 7 through 8. He says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Jesus. More than that, I count all things to be lost in, the view, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Jesus. There it is. Biblical Christianity. Undomesticated Christianity. It's something we don't see much anymore in the modern church. Undomesticated Christianity. I love what John Piper says about this. He says, real faith loves God more than anything. Let me ask you, friend, is that real for you? Do you love God more than anything? I think Piper's right. Well, we know he's right. What does Jesus say? What is the greatest law? That you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's the call. That's undomesticated Christianity. Piper says, real faith loves God more than job, more than money, more than dream houses, more than retirement, more than portfolios. It loves God more than family. It loves God more than life. Real faith says, whether God handles me tenderly or gives me over to torture, I love Him. He's my reward. Don't you love that? Biblical Christianity. That's it. That's it. I love that. Paul knew from the very beginning that it was going to cost... He knew from the very beginning that it wasn't going to be, as John MacArthur uh, says so well, he knew that his Christianity wasn't going to be a run through the park with a bouquet of balloons. You know, Christianity is presented in such a superficial way these days. You know, it's like, well, that's what you think, it's, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be a run through the park with a bouquet of balloons. And God's going to just protect me. He's going to keep me in this little bubble. And nothing temporally bad is ever going to happen to me. You know, you listen to so much bad stuff that's being taught, being taught and preached these days. But you remember what Jesus told Ananias, Acts 9:16. He says, I'll, I'm going to tell Paul all that he must suffer for my sake. So Paul knew it was coming. Paul knew on the front end it was coming. And beloved, we're supposed to know on the front end that it's going to come. Jesus has warned us it's going to come if we really go with Christ. It's going to come. It will come. It will come. Jesus said in Matthew 10 and in Luke 14, Jesus said it might cost you your family to come with me. Jesus said it might cost you your possessions to come with me. Jesus said it might cost you 
everything to come with me. And he exhorted his disciples to what? Count the cost. Count the cost. When was the last time you heard that from a pulpit? Count the cost, friends, if you're going to go with Jesus. That's what he says. Count the cost. Obviously, Paul counted the cost. And he says, I'm in. He caught a glimpse of the living God. He says, I'm down. I'm in. I'm in, Paul says. You can count me in. Jesus Christ is better than safety. He's better than security. He's better than comfort. He's better than ease. He's better than prestige. He's better than popularity. He's better than everything. And that's how Paul lived. He lived like that was true. <laughs> I just want to ask you, Christian friend, do you live like that's true? I know we fail. I know we struggle. I know it's not easy. But I'm exhorting you. I'm your pastor. That's my job to exhort you. Every time you come in here, man, I'm going to exhort you to get from where you are to the next spot. Right? We're all in a different place in our walk with God. But I'm going to exhort you to go to the next step with Jesus. That's my job, I think. That's uh, one of my most important jobs. We know that Paul suffered greatly. We learn this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Five, nine, five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned and left for dead. He experienced numerous imprisonments. He was beaten times without number. He experienced hunger and thirst and cold and exposure. How did Paul talk about all this? Did he wring his hands and moan and groan and, 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 and try to get sympathy about this? What does Paul say? It's awesome what this, what this apostle says, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, these are momentary light afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory I will receive in Christ Jesus. Amen? I mean, that's, that's to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's really understanding it. That's really processing it through your heart. Uh, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's processing it through your heart and living it. Paul said, these are momentary light afflictions. <laughs> You've got to love it. You know, we've talked about it so often. You know, Paul was one of those guys, his worldview was dominated by his heaven view. I mean, everything, Paul, everything that God brought into Paul's life, Paul saw it through an eternal, uh, through the, through the uh, eternal prism. He interpreted everything through God and everything through eternity. That's how he lived. His heaven view dominated his world view. He, was, he radically believed the promises of God and he lived them. He was pointing at the beam of seat as we talk about so often. He built his life around the promised reward of God. He says, I am intent on running to win and to finish my course and to fight the good fight. Christian, are you like that? Is it like that with you? That's what it means to go with Jesus. I know it's infinitely more than being a church member. That's walking with Jesus. And Paul, man, you, Paul, yeah, he was hopeless. <laughs> he was hopelessly in love with this awesome God. Paul says, keep your safe, secure, comfortable, risk-averse, tame religion. If I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down swinging. I'm going to go down magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24 there, you notice Paul says, I don't just endure my suffering. Someone tell me from the text, what does Paul say? What does Paul say about his sufferings? He says, I rejoice in them. 
How does a man do that? How does a man rejoice in his suffering? Well, he's processing everything through that eternal prism. He's processing everything through the God prism. And I think it has a lot to do... It's interesting that this verse comes right after what we talked about last week. What did we talk about last week? Reconciliation. Paul really got reconciliation. When you really get reconciliation, you deserved wrath, you deserved eternal hell, but you got grace, you got eternal heaven. When you really understand reconciliation, your life is changed forever. And I think Paul's saying, man, this is, you know, I understand reconciliation. He says, I, I, I was a sinner. I was a chief of sinners. But now I am reconciled. I am reconciled to God. Paul was so full of joy, you couldn't take his joy. You could beat him all you want. You couldn't take his joy. He was reconciled to the living God. That's what mattered to Paul. Comfort, ease, prestige, job, career, popularity, none of that mattered. He was reconciled to the Father. Friends, I just don't think sometimes we meditate on, on these, these truths that we profess to believe and understand. I think if we, medit- if, if we meditate on some of these things deeply, they are life-changing. You remember, you remember what uh, we learned over in James chapter 1 last year? You know, Paul says, I rejoice. James 1, 2 through 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect uh, result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I love the Greek word translated consider here. It connotes having authority over. You remember what we talked about? The Christian is supposed to let his joy have authority over his trial. I love that language. We're to let, we're to let our joy have authority over our difficulties and our trials and our sufferings and persecutions. This commanded joy in the face of trials and tribulation is pervasive in the New Testament. Uh, Yesterday I just did a brief uh, search of the words suffering, hardship, persecution, affliction, tribulation, trials and burdens. I I did just a brief New Testament search 230 times. It's in the New Testament. It's pervasive. We're not supposed to be shocked when this comes into our lives. We're supposed to be expecting it. We're supposed to be expecting it. It's just all over the Bible. I'm just going to give you a couple of brief passages. Matthew 5, 10 and 20. Jesus says, Blessed are you when you are persecuted and men insult you and falsely accuse you on my account. I'll never forget one time someone, uh, someone emailed me and just tore me up one side and down the other. Somebody that was close to me and it hurt like crazy. It hurt like crazy. And I, I showed it to Karen and Karen said, Blessed are you. Because it was about Jesus. It was about my faith. Karen said, blessed are you. I'll never forget that. That was the perfect thing to say to me. Blessed are you when men insult you falsely and accuse you falsely on Jesus' account. Luke chapter 6, 22 to 23, Jesus says, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and spurn you for my sake. The Bible really says this. It says, be glad and leap for joy. Did you know it was in there? It says, be glad and leap for joy. This is how Christians deal with suffering. 
for the sake of Jesus. Your reward in heaven is what? It is great. Romans 8, 18, Paul says, The present sufferings are not worthy to be compared uh, with the glory to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 12, 10, Paul says, I am well content with weaknesses, uh, insults, distresses, persecutions, and difficulties for Christ's sake. Hebrews 10, 34, the Jews... Uh, joyfully surrendered, knowing that they no, uh, joyfully, sur- uh, pardon me, joyfully suffered. They surrendered their property, knowing that they had a better possession and an abiding one. I love what John Piper says about that Hebrews 10 passage. Uh, the reason they could let go of all they owned joyfully is they had a superior satisfaction. A su- don't you love that? A superior satisfaction. It was Christ. You couldn't touch their joy. You can't touch Paul's joy. He's not going to give it away to you no matter what you do to him. If you beat him with rods or beat him with the lash or throw him into prison, he's not giving up his joy. He's reconciled. These are momentary light afflictions, friend. Is this how you process uh, the trials and difficulties that come into your life? This is the biblical way. This is the Christian way to process the difficulties that come into our lives. You know, I've seen people who profess to be Christians and they just get blown over. And I'm, just ta- I'm not even talking about being persecuted for Christ's sake. I'm just talking about some common thing that happens in everyone's life and a trial will come into their life and they just get blown away. Like, where is God? What's going on? And I understand we have hard times. I'm not making light of that. But, beloved, we're not supposed to be blown away. God is sovereign. God is sovereign in our lives. We're not to be blown away when it gets hard. We're to stand on the rock. We're not to surrender our joy. You know the great story. You know the great story. Uh, Paul and Silas over in Acts 16. They've been falsely accused. They've been stripped. They've been beaten with rods. They've been thrown in a stinking prison. And they've been put into stocks. Now what do you think they were doing? Long about midnight. Does anybody remember? Well, they were, they were wringing their hands and they were feeling sorry for themselves. And they were thinking, how could God ever let this happen? Where's God? He must not love me. He's either not omniscient or He's not uh, omnipotent. Where's God? Why has this happened? Is that what Paul and Silas were doing? What were they doing? They were praising God. Oh, guess what God does when His people won't give up their joy? What does God do? God shows up and there's an earthquake. And they're set free. What else does God do in the joy of His people? What else? The jailer and his whole household were converted. Beloved, you're not supposed to let go of your joy in the trial. You're supposed to hang on to it. Man, you're supposed to magnify Christ in the hard thing. People around you are going to see it. And God does awesome stuff when His people don't give up their joy. I heard one preacher preach this text one time. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm probably in your space, F4, I know. That's the reason Karen won't sit on the front anymore. She says, you get in my space. But... uh, Anyway, then I forgot what I was going to... Oh, uh, Psalm 16.11. I love what a preacher said. You know, Psalm 16.11, that, that in the presence of God is, is, is joy. And I love what the preacher said. He said, you know, Paul and Silas were practicing the presence of God. Let me ask you, friend, when the hard thing comes, is that what you do? Is that, is that your default? Your default heart and mental state? I'm going to practice the presence of God. Or is it to get worked up into a lather in the flesh? Beloved, we're to practice the presence of God in the hard time. 
That's the call. And that leads us perfectly into the end of Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Look what Paul says. Paul says, I do my share on behalf of His body, that's the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What is Paul saying here? He says, I'm doing my share. His share of what? What does the text say? His share of what? His share of suffering. I think the unavoidable implication here is that we all have a share in this suffering. Every Christian has a share in this suffering. We'll call it kingdom suffering. It's part of being a Christian. It's in the job description. Jesus says, if you're going to go with me, count the cost. That's what He says. That's what He says. That's what the Lord God says. You know, you know 2 Timothy 3.12, the Holy Spirit says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Have a nice run through the park with a bouquet of balloons. What does God say? They will be persecuted. If you're really living godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. It's not you may be persecuted, you will be persecuted. That's what the Bible says. And you guys know that great text, 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 16. I'm just going to read it to you. Listen to this, please. Beloved, do not be surprised. That's what Peter says. Do not be surprised at the fiery uh, ordeal among you, which comes upon you uh, for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised, Peter says. This is no strange thing. This happens to every Christian who really goes with Christ. That's what Peter is saying. But to the degree that you uh, share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. He's saying the same thing Paul is. Just rejoice. So that also uh, at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But if anyone suffers... As a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. Peter's saying the exact same thing Paul is saying. It's going to happen. If you're real, it's going to happen. You will be persecuted for the name of Jesus. We're not supposed to be surprised. We're supposed to be ready. And when the hard day comes, you're ready. I'm standing right here. I'm loving Jesus no matter what happens. If I'm loving Jesus no matter what happens. I'm going to obey Jesus no matter what happens. And friends, that's when He comes, man. That's when Jesus comes to His people. And that's when He comes. He, we know He's with us all the time, but man, I'll tell you what, you're going, to get a new, you're going to get a new disclosure from God when you stand in that hard place and you stand there and you will not relent. And you magnify Christ in your hard spot. You won't let, you won't let go of your joy. No matter how hard it gets. You remember oh, over in Acts chapter 5, you remember Peter and some of the other guys? You remember what they said? I always love this verse. They, they were praising God that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. You've got to love that. <laughs> That's undomesticated Christianity. That's biblical Christianity. Lastly, what does Paul what does Paul mean when he says uh, when he says I, I'm, I'm filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions? 
At first glance, that sounds almost blasphemous, as if Jesus' sufferings were not sufficient. We obviously know this is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that Christ's sufferings are lacking merit or they're lacking worth. This is not what uh, Paul is saying. Piper says it perfectly. Let me just read what Piper says. I want you to hear this. I want, this is the whole point. I want you to hear this. Please hear this. Listen to what John Piper says. God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world, guess how? Through you. The afflictions of Christ are to be presented to uh, the world at large through you and through me. Through the afflictions of His people, Piper says. He continues, The suffering love of Christ for sinners is seen in the suffering love of His people for sinners. You get it? I think this is beautiful. This is what Paul's talking about. Christ means for His saving sufferings to be taken to the world through the suffering of His people. I love this. This is weighty theology. This is, this is beautiful stuff. We are to incarnate the sufferings of Jesus. We are to make them visible to the world. We don't go looking for persecution. Absolutely not. But we do not run from it. And if it comes in the sovereign providence of God, we are to what? Does anybody remember? What are we supposed to do when it comes to us in the sovereign providence of God? What do we do? Rejoice. Rejoice. Blessed. Blessed are you. You know, it comes down to how blessed you want to be. <laughs> blessed are you. Blessed are you. I love how um, Joseph T. Son uh, said this because he's a, he's a Romanian pastor. He said, Christ's sufferings were for propitiation. We talked about that last week. Propitiation. I didn't mention the word, but we talked a whole lot about God's wrath being removed from us. That's what propitiation mean, means. Christ's sufferings were pro, for propitiation. Our suffering is for propagation. So the world can see the beauty and worth of Jesus, and that's what Paul is saying to us. We've talked about this many times. Christ's beauty, His sufficiency, His value, His worth are most clearly seen when His people suffer for His name. Obviously, God knows what He's doing. He knows what He's doing. And, and when we suffer for the name of Jesus with joy, it shouts to the world that Jesus is better than anything life can give and Jesus is better than anything death can take. That's what God means for His children's lives to shout. Your life is supposed to shout that. Jesus Christ is better than anything. Jesus Christ is better than anything. So let me just close with a true story here and I'll be done. I'm sorry I didn't look at my watch. I don't know how long I've preached, but anyway. Um, let me just close with a true story. It, it, I got this story from uh, Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. There was a Maasai warrior named Joseph and he went on a journey uh, one day and he encountered an evangelist and he got powerfully converted. He was converted and he was so excited about Jesus, man. He couldn't wait to go back to his village to tell, to tell um, the people about Jesus. So he was all excited. He went into his, this is his own village. He went into his own village. He began to share the gospel. Not only did they not care about the gospel, they got violent about the gospel. And the men held him down while the women beat him with, with uh, barbed wire. And he was bloodied and, and gashed and tremendous open wounds on his body. And they drug him out uh, outside the village and, and they left him there to die, right? Somehow he regains his, 
his composure after a few days and he's able to, to go back into the village. He said, you know, he, he was thinking, I must have said something wrong. I must have gotten the, the gospel wrong. No one would react like that to the gospel, right? I must have said... So he rehearsed it, rehearsed it, rehearsed it. And he went back in there. Guess what happened? They beat him again. They beat him again and they took him back outside the camp and they left him for dead for sure this time. In God's providence, Joseph didn't die. Joseph recovered. And after a few days of passing in and out of consciousness, Joseph was able to to get his strength and he went back in there. He went back in there. And... As the people were beating him, the last thing he remembered before he uh, went unconscious, he he remembered seeing the women starting to cry. And the next thing he knew, he woke up uh, in a bed and he was being uh, tended to and nursed by the people that had beaten him. A majority of them had come to Christ. Do you see the point Paul's making? Do you see the point? We are to incarnate the sufferings of Jesus if necessary. For the propagation of the gospel. For the propagation of the gospel. I love, that, uh, I love that story. It's a true story. I say, no more domesticated Christianity. No more. No more playing religion. No more lukewarm church attendance. I say we get real with God and we follow Jesus. He's worthy, beloved. He's worthy. 1 Peter 4, 12-16 do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may receive with exaltation. You may, pardon me, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled uh, for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of Christ rests upon you, beloved. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You for this great challenge. Father, thank You that You remind us what it means to go with Jesus. Father, thank You that You've reminded us to count the cost. There may be some in here, Lord, that... uh, have been merely playing church. It's just some small portion of their life. Father, obviously this is not biblical Christianity. Lord, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would bring it home to us with great power and force, that we would understand what it means to actually uh, be called a Christian and to walk with Christ. And when the suffering comes, we rejoice and give thanks because You're our God. You're worthy. There is no God like You. You are worthy to live for and worthy to die for. We thank You for this great Gospel, Lord God. We thank You for this challenge. We thank You for this reminder. Jesus is better than comfort. Jesus is better than ease. Jesus is better than prosperity. Jesus is better than anything this life can give. And Jesus is better than anything death can take. Oh Lord, help us to live of Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I pray that each one of us in here would process that through our hearts. And it would be real. It would be a lifestyle for us that we could be like Paul. We could rejoice in the hard thing for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the conversion of sinners. We praise You, beautiful Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.